Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. That's the language that you need to communicate with your colleagues, your peers. That's what everybody else understands. They're not going to understand, oh, we we need to migrate the data center to the cloud. They're not going to understand that, hey, these are all the technical reasons why a forklift could be very complicated. You have to put it in terms that the business is going to understand. And along the way, I think if you use that framework, it helps your own teams understand why their work is relevant to the business. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Han Yuan, founder of PostPC Labs, joins us to discuss some of the biggest converging trends hitting our industry. We're talking the rise of AI, the risk of a bursting tech bubble, and how does all of this converge with engineering leaders and what's the impact? And so we cover how these technology trends are driving opportunities for engineering leaders to become key strategic partners to their organization's business strategy. Han shares advice for how to evaluate business needs and align your effort towards those goals, how to earn a seat at the leadership and decision-making table, and how to build credibility, and then use that credibility as a strategic partner to the business. Let me introduce you to Han. Before founding PostPC Labs, Han was SVP of engineering at Upwork, where he led one of the world's most distributed engineering teams. We're talking 350 plus engineers in 40 countries around the world. During his tenure, Upwork's revenue doubled, and the company went public in 2018. Beyond that, he was an early team veteran pioneering at places like eBay and Netflix. Enjoy our conversation with Han Yuan. First off, just wanted to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's Friday. How are you feeling? What's going on in your world? I am doing fabulous. It's good. The weather's great in the Silicon Valley. I don't have a whole lot to complain about at the moment. No complaints. The sun's coming out. One of the questions we've been asking folks for our peer groups, and they'll kind of come up a little bit, was it's the first sunny, warm day of the year. What is the first thing that you do? And we've got some really cool responses. I don't know if you have an opinion on like first sunny day of the year. What's your first thing that you do? You know, I like to take a walk. I mean, just having the like the sun beam down on your face. I mean, we've we've had a lot of rain here in California. And so one of the reasons why I'm so happy is just because there hasn't been a whole lot of rain the last couple of weeks. I think my mood's up. <laughs> I love it. To set the stage for our conversation today, you know, over the last couple of months, we've launched about 15 different peer groups across a number of different levels of engineering leadership, heads of engineering, directors, VPEs, engineering managers, so all across sort of the level. Many of the folks in those groups, like one of the top one and two areas they wanted to become better at is a desire to become a better business leader, to become more strategic contributors, and to 
overall be better contributors to product and product strategy. And I know that a lot of folks that you've been talking with in, in different venues have been asking you about a lot of those same things. Before we get into like the tactics of how to become a better strategic contributor, uh, I was wondering if we could set the scene a little bit from your perspective for why these elements are so critical for engineering leaders now more than ever. Why is this important? What's going on? What are some of the trends you're paying attention to? And, and what are some of these changes in the industry that are emerging that engineering leaders you know, need to, to pay attention to and what they should do about it? I mean, we are in an absolutely fascinating time. As an industry, we're, we're seeing like two very, very specific pressures. They're normally rare events and usually they're disconnected. They're sort of like planetary objects moving in the cosmos. They're not supposed to line up. But in our case, they've turned out to be like really huge tectonic shifts. I think the first one is if you look at what we've all been seeing in the news, there's been a technology bubble that has burst. This particular bubble, I would argue, is as big, if not bigger, than the kind of bubble that we saw, you know, nearly 22, 23 years ago during the dot-com boom. For those folks um, who are in your community who are not familiar with that, or it feels like an ancient history, I can tell you that at the time, there were lots of people in the industry. There was a gold rush. There was a point where everybody felt like just being in a technology company, you could make a lot of money. And you might also go public, and you could even make more money. That sort of froth resulted in a number of you know, valuations getting out of hand, resulting in ultimately funding for startups that started to collapse, and then ultimately resulting in a whole bunch of people losing work. And we're seeing the exact same patterns you know, two decades later. So that, that's a really, really big thing, that there are just fewer people in the industry right now. And it's a bit unknown when those labor markets are going to recover and or whether or not, if you happen to be looking for work, whether or not you're going to be a part of it. So that, that's really discomforting for a lot of folks. The second thing, which is the positive part, is that we're also going through a technology revolution, like the kind of revolution that only happens every 10 to 15 years. You're talking about the computer, the personal computer, the public internet, you know, the mobile phone, cloud. And, you know, arguably, like all these things like existed before they became popularized. And I, I would argue you know, so-called AI or machine learning, it, it certainly existed a few years ago. But the fact that it's in the public conscious is huge because that's just spurred a lot of interest, a lot of research and development. And people are starting to get really excited about the kind of possibilities and that that's going to generate, you know, some opportunities as well as huge changes in the industry. And it is for the most part, an opaque technology that the typical consumer or the typical person walking down the street isn't necessarily going to understand. And so that presents both a personal opportunity for folks from a professional perspective, but also a general opportunity in the industry because there's, you know, hopefully stuff to invent and build. These are these are two very, very big trends and they're simultaneously happening at once. And I can't recall another time, at least as far as I've been alive, when something this big has happened at the same time. Absolutely. And if you think about like the level of import or impact of those types of trends, like one of them happening on its own is enough to completely shift or disrupt the norm. Both happening at once make for sort of this like confusing tossing experience or almost like whiplash experience for how you should approach or, or deal with this sort of disruption. When you're thinking about the impact of these trends, you know, the bursting tech bubble and in, in this emerging tech revolution that's, you know, once I guess like in a tech workers generation, what's kind of the impact or the implications of these trends? on engineering leaders? 
you know, if we if we take the workforce issue um, and just compartmentalize that, if you if you still happen, you know, to be leading an organization, you may have been impacted by a layoff. And practically, it means that all of a sudden you're sort of staring down at your org chart and you have fewer people. There's a, there's a bit of a misnomer here because um, a lot of times there's some sort of implied expectation that you, you have to get more done with less that the practical implications are that you have fewer people, you're probably not going to get more done. You really need to figure out, for better or worse, how are you going to generate impact to the business? How are you going to do better with fewer resources? This type of pattern certainly existed 20, 23 years ago. I, I remember in my my first job, um, you know, people laugh about this. They can't even believe it. But in my first job, the QA to engineering ratio, you had more QA people than actual software developers. It was a two to one ratio, right? These days, that type of ratio is unheard of. The, the work of quality has fundamentally changed, I think, with SDETs coming into the fore, more automation. We don't need as many QA folks, but back in those days, you had just a lot of black box testing. And so you're going to have to figure out how to, how to accomplish better results with fewer people. And that that that's going to change jobs. That's that's going to change careers for better or worse. Um, there's quite a bit of innovation there. And it will it will be forced upon us one way or another. When you're talking about the question of how are you going to generate impact to the business? It seems like such a simple question, but it seems like that's one of the key perspectives for an engineering leader to take if they're going to maintain relevance in a, in a world in which their resources maybe have to be diminished in terms of viability for the business. Technology is shifting in terms of an individual's ability to expand their impact on the business. And so having somebody who can like direct those efforts and prioritize those things and make those types of decisions is like the only way to stay relevant. Right. I mean, in some ways, though, it's also an opportunity. I think sometimes when we're leaders and we, we have big budgets that just keep increasing, you know, year on year, we tend to get lazy. But it also becomes a bit of a crutch because, you know, the business may come to us and say, hey, like you just got three headcount last year. Why can't you do A, B, C, and D? When we get into the business of saying yes all the time, it creates a different problem, which is ultimately, I think as managers, our job is to evaluate what the needs are of the business and then shape the work. And shaping the work really oftentimes means saying no. But it's super hard to say no when people just keep giving you budget to hire more people. That's such a great point. The difficulty of saying no when you have a budget that's expanding. You were going to share a couple other trends um, and then I, I jumped in. What are some of the other areas of impact that you're queuing into with engineering leaders? I mean, the, the other piece I, I think is is just the technology piece. It's so opaque that you know, everybody's trying to understand it. And there, there's this, this sort of perception that it might solve, you know, quote unquote, world hunger. But the individual that deeply understands the technology shifts that are implied with these large language models and how it could help your business, these are the kinds of opportunities that, for better or worse, does enable us as leaders an opportunity to do some invention to be able to help the business. That is also incredibly exciting. I remember, you know, back in the mobile days, I happened to work with a team, a very small team of engineers, and we actually worked on the original iPad before it launched. And there was this aspect of the iPad where it was this huge screen, and we had this idea of trying to keep users in the app as long as possible. And ultimately, we were able to get users, the average user session was 90 minutes in this iPad app, and it made a lot of money for the company. But the way we did it was we had these like big 
big item detail shots. Um, and we had to optimize the heck out of the, the scrolling experience. When the team was able to pull it off, we got the engagement metrics and it made money. And that that type of thing, you know, first of all, having extremely esoteric hardware that probably only 20 or 30 people had in the Valley and then like making something of it in a very short time frame that would ultimately impact the business. Those kinds of technology opportunities ultimately are going to be engineering driven. And I, I see those kinds of same opportunities potentially as we're talking about the current space today. Are there any kind of those opportunities that you're more excited about kind of emerging in the space that will be engineering driven? I don't know. It really depends on the field you're in. But there are some things that we, we can imagine that are either very exciting or very terrifying. A, a very simple example is there are, there are voice models, generative voice models that can effectively replicate your voice or my voice and our quirks with just a five minute voice sample. And if you marry that with all of the large language models that are out there, there's a very real possibility you can just deep fake a human being in customer service. I mean, imagine a world where you go onto a platform, you fine tune an LLM, you have some voice models. You, you could have an entire army of people picking up phones that aren't actually human. That's both a business opportunity, but in some ways, there are all kinds of other questions around how many jobs are shifting or how many jobs will be lost by virtue of what you're building. I mean, a news headline that came through this week about a woman, she got a phone call from her mom that essentially was a deep fake version of her mom essentially asking her for money. So in terms of like the sophistication of some of these like fraudulent scams that people have to be aware of now, like that's kind of a whole different area to go down. But just like in terms of like bad actors leveraging technology for, you know, bad outcomes like that, like that's also kind of, you know, an unexpected sort of fear. But going back to what you mentioned about the job disruption and the fear of losing jobs, some of the things that I thought have been interesting is there's a lot of speculation around what jobs are relevant, what jobs will be irrelevant, disrupted in some of these like big shifts around like LLMs, specifically talking about like the context of an engineering leader, or engineering management, for somebody who is like in the camp of afraid of losing their job, do you have any perspectives on behaviors that will guarantee make them no longer relevant to the business, just in terms of to provide like the anti pattern or the contrast so that somebody knows what they should focus on looking forward? I'll give you the first litmus test. Folks should really ask themselves if they even want to be in the industry. Do you really want to survive? You see it in the press, people talk about it. My tech job is so stressful. This isn't the work that I want to do. And I'm not saying that you have to stay in the industry. I'm actually asking a legitimate question. Like how many people in the field actually want to stay in the field? I've been in the field for a while. You know, honestly, when I think back to the people that I started off my career with, most of them aren't in the field anymore, for better or worse. Some of them are real estate agents. Some of them sell insurance. Like people have random jobs, even though they, they started in tech and they, they went ahead and did something else. I say that because not to be flippant, but if technology isn't your passion, you are not going to make it because there are people who are in a coffee shop on a college campus somewhere building stuff, pushing things on GitHub for free, and they love it. When your job is something where people will do it anyway because they're passionate about it, you have a lot of competition because you're competing against people who will do the work for free. However, I would also argue that if it is your passion and you, you happen to have a head start in it, you're going to you know, stay in it no matter what. Take the impact of LLMs and you know, how we do our work. I have been super excited about GitHub Copilot. A lot of leaders have like read about it. 
they haven't tried it. You need to try it. It's just mind blowing when you describe what you want to write. You know, I need an express server. I need to open up these endpoints and you hit return or you hit tab and the whole thing just generates for you. It's totally mind blowing. But here's the rub. After all that generated code, somebody still needs to understand if this actually did what it was supposed to do. That requires a level of sophistication that's much, much higher than generating the source code itself. That does require quite a bit of expertise. I do think there is a role for deeply technical leaders, but you you have to be actually passionate about what got you into this place to begin with, because the world's about to get a lot more complicated and you have to have the passion and the patience to like pick it up. So in this space, so somebody identifies, yes, I am passionate about this space. We're existing in this environment of the fallout of sort of this bursting tech bubble in this emerging revolution that is creating all different types of opportunities for new applications like in technology products. So somebody has the question of, yes, I want, I'm passionate about this space. I want to survive. What do I do? You had mentioned kind of two mandates for an engineering leader to be relevant here. The question of, yeah, you have to be focused on how are you going to generate impact to the business and your focus should be on evaluating the needs of the business and shaping the work to, to meet those types of needs. Would love to dive into like, how can an engineering leader become a more strategic value add to the business and to better do those types of things? What should somebody do? The single biggest mistake I see people doing all the time they don't align their organization's activities with the business themselves in, in a very, very specific way. If you, if you zoom out and you, you kind of think about like, why do companies exist in general? They exist for like one of three reasons. One is make money. I'm either helping my customers make money or I as a company, I'm potentially trying to make money by virtue of the activities I'm doing. I'm helping my customers save money or by virtue of the kind of work that I do inside the company, we have initiatives that will help the company save money or I'm helping my customers save time or in the parlance of me operating the business, I'm trying to get more efficient in how I do the work to improve my ability to compete in the marketplace through faster time to market. Now, with that being said, you know, a, a typical sort of engineering leader needs to reframe, you know, what is their work in those three buckets? Because that's the language that you need to communicate with your colleagues, your peers. That's what everybody else understands. They're not going to understand, oh, we, we need to migrate the data center to the cloud. They're not going to understand that, hey, these are all the technical reasons why a forklift could be very complicated. You have to put it in terms that the business is going to understand. That is going to be the art. And along the way, I think if you use that framework, it helps your own teams understand why their work is relevant to the business. And th this, I think, is both an opportunity and a very, very consistent gap that I see among engineering leaders that I, I run into. Definitely a big gap. And I think that's why it's come up so much in some of our different peer groups is because there's almost like this translation that has to happen that can be a little bit difficult to just figure out the verbiage to do it. Going back to aligning an org's activity to, to business goals, how would you approach like evaluating the needs of the business? Maybe you were misaligned and now you need to regain alignment. Like what would be the step for you to walk through an assessment or an evaluation on your side? You know, some of it is going to be, you know, what folks talk about in the business. There are times when organizations are, are looking to improve their EBITDA or their profitability. And so during those times when the, the broader corporate narrative is that, you're probably going to, especially in times when you don't think the top side is going to grow, there are opportunities to impact the business by either saving time or saving money. 
There are other times, um, especially if you know you're on a growth trajectory, either you're about to go into a situation where you have to raise money, maybe you're going public. I don't think anybody's going public anytime soon. That's when those offensive uh, style mindsets come into play uh, where you have to start thinking about, you know, what are my initiatives that will help the company make more money? Having that point of view up front is is really important because if you're misaligned on that, you're going to have problems. If you're talking about saving money when the company is trying to make money, um, and these could be things like, say, refactoring uh, your platform, that's awesome you know, for you and your team. And I'm sure it's really important for developer productivity. But at this point in time, maybe future velocity is really important. Being very, very crystal clear on where you are in this environment and in your organization is the keystone. The simplicity and the clarity of that, I think is so powerful. Just as you were saying that, it's like, okay, cool. Like those are just two very simple directional orientations in terms of being able to communicate that and, and very focusing. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. For an engineering leader who's like seeking opportunities to better transform the strategy of a business, like what are the ripest opportunities for an engineering leader where like their unique perspective can make a big impact on the business right now or the strategy of a business right now? I think this is going to be counterintuitive, but I, I would argue that for most individuals just growing their career, you're probably going to be better off whether or not at your current company or through the lifetime of your career coming up, being part of the narrative of, of growing the business. Because nobody gives you the, the gold medal for saving a lot of money or saving a lot of time. I think those are necessities from a day-to-day parlance perspective, but um, growing the business um, is, is really, really important. The pitch on how you grow the business, there are going to be you know, certain phases of the pitch. You, you have to identify the problem to be solved. And if you're growing the business, you're likely increasing the total addressable market size of your business. Alternatively, you are growing the revenue of your existing customer base. So in other words, you are increasing new average recurring revenue or you are growing um, net revenue retention. Those are the two things, right? It may be easier, especially if you have a large customer base, to figure out unique ways to monetize the customer base. So that, that's like the first fork you have to think through. The second fork is you have to have some kind of model however it works. And again, this is very business dependent, but there has to exist a model somewhere where you have some sense of, if I do this, the company is more likely to make more money. And and so that model is probably behavioral in nature. Maybe it means if more users go through this funnel, we will make more money. Or like an e-commerce example would probably be the most obvious, which is if more people add things more to the shopping cart, then we as a company are going to make more money. What are some different ways we can help people add things to the shopping cart? And maybe a machine learning approach is going to help us here. Being able to understand um, and, and start to identify the opportunities Um, And getting very specific between what are the behavioral sort of leading metrics and how they might translate into revenue will start to give you the framework around, okay, these are the things that I can start driving as a leader. You are going to need 
alliances within your organization. Unless you are an extraordinarily compelling communicator who happens to have the gravitas across the engineering side as well as the business, you're going to need to establish strong alliances, certainly with your product counterpart if you have one, and possibly with your go-to-market side, including sales and marketing. But I think those are also extremely key components to being an effective leader, that you, you will not be able to do something huge alone. And going into it um, with that mindset is, is critical. I really appreciate the clarity of here are the areas to look at when identifying opportunities to grow the business. Do you have any questions you ask yourself to help generate ideas for some of these different approaches? Or like if you were going to meet with key stakeholders in your engineering org for the question of how do we grow the business? Are there certain questions that help you generate ideas related to like your business model or things that an engineering leader could ask themselves to help them start to generate some of those solutions for themselves? You know, I, I kind of take the position that I'm not that smart. And I, I say that up front because what I found is that over a period of time, even a short period of time, like an organization that has been around for a couple of years, there are many, many good ideas, number one. And number two, many of those ideas have been tried. But I think what happens is that there are reasons why some of those ideas have not been pursued. There is also evidence that some of those ideas that have failed, like why did they fail? I, I think deeply understanding why something fails is really important. Sometimes an organization is just not willing to invest, either the capital, um, the marketing, or they got impatient over a long period of time. But it may be the case that the situation has changed. You know, reading the current environment vis-a-vis -vis what has been tried in the past is key. One of the nice things about using an old idea and resurrecting it is that chances are there are still people who believe in it. So I think, again, it makes bringing people along and trying to like bring something to life that would generate offense for the business just that much easier. Because you kind of skip the step of like pitching something that's wildly new and then convincing a bunch of people. I love the idea of revisiting old ideas. Going back to what you mentioned about to transform the strategy of the business, you need to be a part of the narrative of growing the business. It's like, how do I get my foot in the door? How do I become a voice in the room? And so if somebody maybe feels like they're boxed out of that conversation or doesn't necessarily know how to become a participant in the room talking about business strategy or to be able to participate in strategy level conversations, what should somebody do? And do you have any stories or examples of what that becoming a valued partner to strategy looks like? Let me ask you a question. Have you heard of horns and halo biases? No, I haven't. I think it's a fascinating topic. We all have biases at work. There's some people that have halos. There's nothing they can do wrong and they still look awesome. It's weird, right? Like the favorite child of the CEO, whatever. I mean, that that's just the reality, right? There are also people who have horns. Maybe they've been at the company for five years, six years, came up from customer service, and now they're a product manager. There's an impression of who they were when they were young that is a completely disconnected from who they are today. And that that is a, you know, like, quote unquote, horns bias, right? And, to, and I say that because, you know, sometimes when people ask me this question, the first question I ask is like, well, how long have you been there? You know, you're, you're having a hard time breaking through. You're asking yourself, what can I do differently so I could be taken more seriously? The very simple question is that in a lot of cases, the answer is you should get another job. And that's a very uncomfortable answer. But in, in, in in some ways, I'm saying there's no silver bullet there. But the opportunity is when you leave your current role and you go to a new place, people reset. They don't know who you are. Their impression of you is totally different. In the past, um, I used to do this experiment as I was coming 
growing up where every time I changed jobs, I would change the way I dress just for giggles. And it, it's fascinating that people really interact with you very differently depending on how you dress. And even something as simple as that was, was really mind-blowing to me. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is that assuming that you you have credibility, which I think is extremely important, you, you have to be credible, then I think that the conversation is easier. Um, or if you happen to have, um, you're relatively early in your tenure, then you may have an opportunity to establish credibility ability to be able to open the doors to that strategic conversation. But if too much time has passed, it's going to be very, very difficult to fix. Well, a lot of folks that have shared that where they've gotten stuck here is like, you know, maybe it's a company they've been at for five, six, seven years. They started off, you know, as like a mid-level engineer, moved into management, are now kind of in this like senior manager, aspiring director churn and bridging the gap to that next level. Like, it's so true that somebody say who's like senior at that company will see you and still see you as like that mid-level engineer and not necessarily as like an evolving or have like significantly grown senior leader. And I, I have seen a lot of people get stuck with that. I think it's so true. Yeah. I think in my my own personal history, um, if, if you look me up on LinkedIn, I, I did some mobile work at eBay. Then I did some mobile work at Netflix. These involved, you know, working with teams that launched some of the very, very early, heavily downloaded apps. I got hired back at eBay, but they didn't hire me back at my old job grade. They hired me back at a higher job grade. If I just did the grind at eBay, would I have been able to jump from a director to a senior director in the time span? I'm going to have to say probably not. But if, if I went out and did something else that was material, that probably added more to my career, even though I went back to the same spot, because now there's something dramatically different. And the impression of who I am as a, as a professional changed. Um, and I, I think it was a lot easier to change those impressions by leaving and then coming back. Mm -hmm. Going back to establishing credibility for your idea and becoming a more strategic contributor to the direction of the business. Are there any stories or examples from your experience in which you had an idea and you knew it was going to make a material difference to the company and you were able to establish that credibility, advocate for that idea successfully? I joined Upwork at a really rough time. It was just after the Elance Odesk merger and the week before the rebrand where the company became Upwork. So for those folks who don't know, Upwork is a marketplace where freelancers and clients can meet and do work. Um, they move up billions of dollars a year now in terms of labor, and they have become a really a keystone marketplace, especially post-COVID, because now you can, you can find people to hire. That's the company that I joined back in 2015 and I was there up until it went public. But when I first joined, it was tough. We had one nine of uptime. We had an actual physical data center that had a one gig link up to AWS. It was very, very unstable. I was trying to manage effectively two engineering teams, one from Elance and one from Odesk. These companies were competitors to each other. So the teams didn't like each other very much. They, <laughs> like people, people would sit next to each other. They don't even talk to each other. They hate each other, right? I mean, it's like rival gangs. Um, and so... You had all kinds of operational issues. And as a new person, I had a lot of headaches, right? And, and for years, I, to be candid, I, I would tell Stefan in my performance review, you should have fired me this year. Objectively, I was doing a bad job. <laughs> like the site couldn't stay up. Stuff was not getting shipped. Things were so bad sometimes. I asked for a moratoriums on, on future pushes. But I think I was able to establish credibility. And the way I established credibility was I was always very transparent in explaining these are the problems. This is why stuff is breaking. This is why things are not getting done. And I was very, very public about it. I think if you can 
demonstrate that you understand the issues and then also explain the issues, the why. And you get very, very good at explaining the why. I think leaders will find that they can get away with a lot and still be fairly effective. I had established enough credibility at that time that I was able to say, hey, I think we should do this. And then we went ahead and did that. And in this particular case, I had learned that many of our clients were U.S.-based clients. I had also learned that the clearing rates for freelancers that were also U.S.-based happened to clear for a lot more money. And so I, I had this question in my mind, how many U.S. to U.S. hires are we seeing? Back in the day, you can only narrow your search to a continent. You couldn't even narrow a search on Upwork to a country, let alone city or zip codes today. But it so happened that the data team reported to me. There's an engineer. I don't know if he'll be listening to this. His name is Mark Shway. Um, he's a director now. But I, I pulled Mark aside and I said, like, dude, I have a hobby project for you. Run some queries for me. You know, I want to understand how many hires are happening between Americans. I also want to understand like how many hires are happening and within what physical distance are they happening? You know, he had to bring in a geo database and we were just hacking on this on the side. But as a technical person who runs engineering, I have an advantage, right? That person reported to me. And so these are these are the kinds of structural advantages that I think sometimes engineering leaders forget. You do have access to not only the technology side, but also the data side. And in this particular case, we discovered that, in fact, um, U.S. to U.S. relationships were a significant part of the business. Um, many people were hiring folks within 100 miles. I was able to, you know, explicate that, hey, this is this is a large portion of the business. Let's build some features so that at least people can filter by, you know, country or state or even zip code. And it, it turns out, you know, at very soon after, I would say within 18 to 20 months, we started growing dramatically, like single digit points week on week to the point where we went public in 2019. And it was it was a really happy sort of moment for me personally. Um, and it was also gratifying for, I think, the teams that worked on it. I can't take credit for, you know, working on it per se. Like I'm not writing the code um, and I didn't even define the features. But I had the thought that this could be an opportunity for the company. You know, to some degree, that's the job at some point. But I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't have the credibility and nobody listened to me. What a powerful story just in thinking about the whole life cycle of establishing that credibility all the way to unlocking the just a different pathway for the business. I don't think there's a better way to, to close off our conversation there, Han. So that's <laughs> the, I'll, I'll just say that there. We do have some rapid fire questions if you're ready to dive into some of those. Okay, let's do it. What are you reading or listening to right now? I am reading uh, Sapiens. It was ostensibly a book about the evolution of humankind, but I, I was quite shocked by how it navigates not only the biology and science piece, but also culture, the advent of money, and how it's easy for us to connect the dots looking backwards on how things have happened to be. And I feel like there's some kind of analogy there for technology as well. Um, and so I, I've been thinking about you know how the Sapiens story has been told vis-a-vis -vis, um, you know, where we happen to be in the current moment. Man, if, you know, if a couple months from now somebody came out with the Sapiens version of the history of technology, I think that'd be a pretty interesting book to be written. I probably wouldn't be able to do that. But if you or somebody else you know would jump into that, or if anybody listening could do that, uh, this is a call to action for that. Yeah, somebody should write that book. It's going to be amazing. 
Next question. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? This is probably going to date me a little bit, but I'm a huge fan of Stephen Covey's Four Disciplines of Execution. It's it's evolved a little bit over the years since his son took over the business and he unfortunately passed away. But the Four Disciplines of Execution are pretty amazing. It's, it's had a big impact on me. I was going to tell you what the Four Disciplines are, but they're a little bit different between what they were in the 2000s and the 2010s. But I would encourage the, your listeners to look it up. It's fun. Which one do you prefer, the 2000s or the 2010s? I think I prefer the early 2000s. The reason it was because one of the disciplines was to make sure that you reward teams rather than individuals. Mm -hmm. And I, I always thought that was really fascinating. We'll add a link in the show notes so people can check that out. We've talked a lot about trends today. So this is more of just a broad question for what's a trend you're seeing or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? Maybe anything we haven't covered quite yet. I mean, we kind of covered it, but I don't think we really understand how much the job is going to change for technologists. 20, 30 years ago, there were people who could write assembly um, and they could write programs. I don't know what's going to happen with LLMs. Today, like I think no no software engineer knows how to write assembly, but yet we're, we're still generating software. Will we still be writing in high-level programming languages five years from now? What does that even look like? And what is the role of the software engineer? And I don't think that's as out there as it sounds because, you know, how we generate code um, has evolved over time. Um, and I think it will be evolving over time. The high level languages that we think about today, like Python, could be, you know, assembly language for the software engineer 15 years from now. It is a big question to wrestle with. Last question, Han, to wrap us up, is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's been resonating with you right now? I just try to tell myself every day that I'm, I'm a good person and I'm trying to do the right thing. And I've been telling myself that for 20 years because I think leadership is really, really hard. Um, some folks may be in a position where they have to make a tough decision about their personnel and it's not really clear like what the right thing is. So I think reminding myself that I'm at least trying to do the right thing has helped my mental health. I think it's a point of awareness that I think will provide a lot of folks relief as they are listening and asking themselves that same question. Han, I just want to say thank you for an incredible conversation. I mean, helping call out and clarify the converging trends and the implications that it has on the environment that we're operating in, I think was very, very helpful. And then on the other side of that, layering on just how to better contribute to business strategy and to develop the credibility to even be in the room, what types of things people should be paying attention to and how they can use all that information to just better support their businesses. That has been a big question in our community. And this is something that will help people take a few steps further into making a bigger impact. So thank you. you know, thank you for having me on board. Um, it's been a while since we've spoken, so I'm excited to be back. Um, and it's always a great conversation hanging out with you. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community, to stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups and other programs that are going on. Head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.